0: Hello, my name is Liz and the Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes 3:19 through 22. Humans and animals come to the same end. Humans die, animals die. We all breathe the same air, so there's really no advantage in being human. None. Everything's smoke. We all end up in the same place. We all came from dust, we all end up as dust. Nobody knows for sure that the human spirit rises to heaven or that the animal spirit sinks into the earth. So I made up my mind that there's nothing better for us men and women than to have a good time in whatever we do. That's our lot. Who knows if there's anything else to life. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is John. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 4:7 through 12. But we have this treasure in clay pots, so that our awesome power, so that the awesome power belongs to God and doesn't come from us. We are experiencing all kinds of trouble, but we aren't crushed. We are confused, but we aren't depressed. We are harassed, but we aren't abandoned. We are knocked down, but we aren't knocked out. We always carry Jesus' death around in our bodies so that Jesus' life can also be seen in our bodies. We who are alive are always being handed over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life can also be seen in our bodies that are dying. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. My name is Courtney, and our gospel reading is found in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be
1: to you. Would you. remain standing as we pray? Open our eyes, Lord, <clears throat> that we would see Jesus today. And open our ears, Lord, that we would hear Jesus today. And Lord, open our hearts that we would love and serve and follow Jesus today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> Well, we're in this series through the book of Ecclesiastes, so we've, get, we've gotten to enjoy a few really fun readings so far. And you've got to love the Bible because it, it's full of these things that you, you never thought were okay to say in church, you know. Uh, one of the threads that we've been chasing through this book of Ecclesiastes is that Ecclesiastes is so honest that it, it confronts our optimism. Sometimes we have sort of a hollow optimism, you know, a Lego movie, everything is awesome kind of optimism. And Ecclesiastes says, are you sure? Are you sure that the pleasures of food and drink are as good as you think? Are you sure that... And it pushes the boundaries of those things. But on the other hand, it also redeems our cynicism. You know, we're kind of a cynical age where we sort of distrust anything, you know, um, e- even a- Apple products that we've grown to love, we now sort of get cynical about the press conferences. You know, we're like, no, you, you can't possibly have built everything from the ground up one more time, Joni Ivey, you know. Made it more elegant and beautiful. <laughs> You're like, ah, oh, please, really? <laughs> and there's a cynicism even about good things in our world where we say, I don't know if that story is really, I don't know if that happy ending is true, I don't know if that's, you know. And what Ecclesiastes offers us is a way that, to redeem our cynicism, a way to say, yeah, yeah, I see that cynicism, but you know what? That cynicism could help you sort of pull the thread on the sweater and un, until you unravel the whole thing, because at the end of it, you just might find joy. See, Ecclesiastes focuses on life under the sun. Now, it's not that the the writer of Ecclesiastes, which by tradition is Solomon, it's not that Solomon didn't believe in God. No, it's that he was commenting on life, on everything under the sun, everything in this sort of closed dome world. Now, when you think of it that way, there is actually a parallel with our world. We live in a world that that really doesn't want to comment about God or faith or afterlife or anything transcendent at all. We live in a world that says, I don't really know about any of that stuff, but let's just focus on the stuff we do know about. Let's focus on the thing that's right in front of you. Let's just think about and talk about life under the sun. But every once in a while, there's these little cracks in the dome overhead. There are places where this veil between heaven and earth runs a little thin, I think one of those thin places is at birth. When you witness a birth, if you've ever been in the hospital room shortly after a baby has been born and you're looking at them in the French fry warmer thing, you know, (laughs) and you stand over them and all of a sudden you're like, this is the most beautiful moment of all. Something holy is happening. Unless you're the mom, then you're just exhausted. But the other one of those thin places is death. If you've ever sat at the bedside of a person in their final moments, there's something, it's very hard to put your finger on, that it it almost is holy. It makes you think about something beyond this life, a thin place in this world. And yet death, death is not one of those things that we like to think about. Death might be inevitable, and so this morning our our title is the inevitability of death. And we say, sure, death might be inevitable, but it's certainly avoidable. At least in the meantime, why think about it? I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. Our sort of contemporary solution is to postpone death as long as we can. Keep all of the people who are sick and dying, keep them away from the center of life. I don't want to think about it. Let's just send them away to a building Let's build floor upon floor upon floor in this building so all of the sick and dying can be housed there because I don't want to see them. Years ago when I was a a younger pastor at New Life Church, we were all given a pastor on call pager. This was, as I said, years ago. And we were all given this pager for one week out of the year where we had to serve as the pastor on call. And you sort of dreaded it. You were just hoping that when you got the pager, you wouldn't get any bad calls, you know, any bad. Page. And you never knew because you've just a page. And so then you called back and you're like, "Hi, um, I'm glad. Just I was paged, you know." And sometimes it's like, "Yeah, I was just wondering when your service times are on Sunday." And you're like, Phew, "Thank God." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But of course, there were times and I, that were much more difficult than that. And I remember one of the first times I got a page, and it was for a hospital visit. And I drove downtown to Memorial Hospital, and and I knew I was walking into parents with a, 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 a whose baby was sick. His baby had meningitis, and it was c- completely and utterly bleak. And I kind of was bracing myself in the car, and I walked in, and nothing could have prepared me for that moment. I, you know, what do you say in those moments? No words are ever adequate. And so, sitting with the parents, praying for the baby, anointing with oil. And I got back to my car in the, in the parking garage and just lost it, just bawled. I think we had just had our first child at the time, Sophia, was a few months old, so it, was, it wasn't hard to put yourself in someone else's position, and I just lost it. Death is a painful reality. And so on the one hand, I understand why we don't want to think about it or talk about it or avoid it, but Ecclesiastes is asking us to confront it today, and so We will. Chapter 3, verse 18 of Ecclesiastes, this is what Solomon says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. One of the first things we can say from these verses is that death is really about fragility. It's about the fragileness of life. Think of Solomon's image here, dust. It's all dust. Think about when you reach on a bookshelf to grab a book and woo, there goes some dust flying or a table. I mean, it's just, dust is just, it's, it's, it's in a precarious place, easily unsettled, easily moved around, just dust. Death reminds us of our fragility. Think about the earthquakes in Nepal. I Skyped a couple weeks ago with our friends whom we support as a church who are missionaries there in Nepal and talking with them. They're all safe, but talking with them about their, uh, the, the, the staff and their offices and family members and just how utterly chaotic it is for them and heartbreaking And how in a moment you can lose what you once had. Think about all of these different situations, the train from Philly to New York. Life is so fragile. And death reminds us of that. The writer goes on, he says in verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now this might surprise you, but you know, in the Old Testament, death was really viewed as the end. In Solomon's world, in Solomon's day, death was about finality. Death was about finality. Now, all of, all of you are looking at me like, that's not true. They believed in heaven. They didn't. In fact, in the, earliest, in the earliest Jewish thought throughout the Old Testament, there is a sense that death is kind of where the story ends. That's why the psalmist says, teach us to number our days and to know that this is all that we have. Elsewhere... The psalmist kind of bargains with God. He says, God, you better rescue me from the grave because I can't praise you if I'm in the grave. (laughs) That's his leverage with God. I know you like this praise thing, so keep me alive, would you? The Hebrew picture of Sheol, the grave, is the ending place, the place where it ends. There is a sense of finality. Now, later on in Jewish thought, the other views start to develop, and there's some sense of maybe Yahweh receives us in some sort of a continuing life, and then you see hints in Daniel about maybe the persecuted will be resurrected, and then it's later in the the books that come in between Old Testament and New Testament, the apocryphal books, where you see in the Maccabean books this hope of the martyrs being resurrected, but really, in the world of Ecclesiastes, death is final. It's kind of the end. And so his conclusion then in verse 22 is So I saw there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, but that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Death is about futility for Solomon. In other words, it's sort of like him saying, Life is fragile, death is final, and resistance is futile. <laughs> so eat, drink, and be merry. So, and that's, this is his grand conclusion is, well, just enjoy what you got. Now, if you ask me, this sounds a lot like our day. We have fewer, I think, fewer people who are militantly atheistic and more people who are quote-unquote humbly agnostic. And I say quote-unquote humbly because it, it has this veneer of humility of saying, oh, I don't really know. I don't know what happens to the beast. I don't know what happens to you. I don't know if dogs go to heaven and cats go to hell. I don't know any of this stuff. I don't know where you're going. I don't know where she's going. I don't know where I'm going. hey, we've got tonight, baby. (laughs) Worst pickup line ever, right? Run away. But this is the world that we live in, sort of a veneer of agnosticism of saying, I I don't really know, I, I don't know, but hey, what we do know is that wine is great, friendship is fun, let's just enjoy the night. Is that all there is to say? It's interesting because for us in our contemporary world The only way to escape this depressing picture of like, oh, you know, I'm fragile and death is final and life here is futile anyway. The only way to escape it is not only just to have a good time, but it's also also to sort of minimize death. It's to minimize it. Anything that we can do to sort of lessen the severity of death. That's not really, I mean, that's, it's no big deal, I mean, this is kind of, you know, we've talked about the ways that we marginalize it, but there's also a way that we minimize it. The first seven or eight years of my time on staff at New Life was as a worship leader, and so as a worship leader, I would play at a lot of, you know, services beyond Sunday services, I would play at funerals. And so for being 37, I, I feel I've been to an inordinate amount of funerals at my age, and you get the chance to hear what people say to one another to find comfort. Now, I want to say this. In the moment, nobody, it's not the time to, to talk to anybody about their theology of hope, right? In the moment of grief, it's time to sit and be like Job's friends were at the first part of it, where they were just quiet. That's good. But as time goes on, there is a question about how do we speak to one another about hope? And it's interesting to me to think about some of the poems or phrases or even, sadly, the quote-unquote sermons that I've endured at funerals. Because you recognize that what is being given is not actually hope, but an attempt to cheapen death. And so you'll hear people say things like, well, you know, we just, you know, so-and-so. They're not really dead. They've just been freed from their cage like a bird. Or I went to one where it was an Air Force pilot and they said, well, you know, he's just been led higher and higher up into the sky and he's been shown an officer's club where there were free drinks. I mean, all this stuff, and she started going on about like, it it was all very strange that this was the idea of hope, that he hasn't really died, he's just found an officer's club in the clouds. Maybe you've heard the Early 1900s American Poem. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow, I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sun on ripened grain, I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there, I did not die. We can't bring ourselves to say that death is real. The bird being freed from its cage, that's Plato, that's not Paul. The I didn't die, I'm just part of the trees and the breeze and the stars, that's pantheism, also not Paul. Both are ways of denying the reality of death. Church, I want to say to you, if you deny the reality of death, you cheapen the reality of our hope. If you deny the reality of you cheapen the reality of our hope, that our hope is magnificent, so magnificent that we need not get to our hope by cheapening death. In fact, Ecclesiastes is freedom, is permission to say what you know in the pit of your stomach. Ecclesiastes is permission to give voice to that knot inside you when you've lost someone. It's permission to say, death stinks. I hate it. Ecclesiastes is permission to say what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that death is an enemy. The last enemy, Paul says. Ecclesiastes says, go ahead and name it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't lessen it. Don't tell tell me death is a friend that has led me to a better place. Don't, don't, Don't sweeten it. Just say it. Death is an enemy, and death stinks. Right. And once you get there, all the way down to the bottom, now the question is, okay, okay, so what? What do we say? There's something that Paul knew that Solomon did not. Paul knew the gospel. Paul knew the gospel that says that Jesus Christ came and took on flesh. Stop right there. We kind of breeze right through this in the creed. You know, yeah, yeah, he was born of a virgin, you know, all this stuff, and he came, took on flesh. Why are we saying all these things? Do you know why we're saying it? Because we're saying that Jesus' humanity was real, it wasn't fake wasn't that he sort of came and pretended to be hungry, pretended to be thirsty, pretended that the wounds on the cross hurt him. Jesus actually suffered. One of the early church fathers said it this way, that which he did not assume, take on, is that which is not healed. But the reverse is true, that because Jesus took it on, our actual flesh and blood, it means he heals it. John is the New Testament writer that is really intent on helping us see this. The Word became flesh, he says in his gospel. And then in one John, his later letters, he says, We saw him. We ha- ha- handled him in the flesh. Why is he saying this? John's the gospel writer that tells us about Thomas putting his hands in the wounds of Jesus. Why? Because he wants us to know Jesus was real flesh and blood, and Jesus really died. He really died. He wasn't kind of playing a prank in the grave saying, hey, guys, y'all just watch this. Sundays are coming. (laughs) In fact, not only was his incarnation real flesh and blood, not only was his death real physical death, but his resurrection was real bodily resurrection. Resurrection. Do you know, this is why the gospel writers bother to tell us these stories about Jesus after the resurrection, not being a ghost, actually eating and drinking. Why, are they, what are they, why do these stories matter? Because it's the, these early Christians' way of saying to us, his physicality was real, his death was real, his bodily resurrection was real. And you know what's amazing? The way that the first apostles preached the gospels, they don't say, as often, very few times as they say Jesus rose, most of the time they say God raised. Do you know why? Because they didn't want anybody to get confused that Jesus was some sort of Greek mythology hero that was sort of dying and then roar, ripped off the chains of death. They wanted everybody to know, no, he died full on, went to the grave. But the second person of the Trinity was so loved by the first person of the Trinity that the Father did not abandon him to the grave, Acts says, but God raised him up. Jesus was loved with a love that is stronger than death. Think about that. And now the gospel says to you and to me, it says, look, if you are in Christ, then you have been loved with a love that is stronger than death. You have been loved with a love that is stronger than death. There's that other Old Testament book that is connected with Solomon, the Song of Solomon, and there's a verse in there where it says love is as strong as death. Well, that's great, but Solomon didn't know a love that is not just as strong as death, but a love that is stronger than death. And that's the love that we see in Easter, in resurrection. A love that is stronger than death that Paul would say in Romans 8 neither death nor life nor angels nor demons no past nor present nor future nor height nor th-. nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Now what does that do? Well, it changes everything. What is being loved with a love that is stronger than death do for our Fragileness, our fragility. You know what it does? It says that this body will not be your last body. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that one day when he appears, he'll give you a body that is imperishable, a body that cannot die. You've been loved strong with a love that is stronger than death, and so one day you'll receive a body that is stronger than death. What does it mean for the finality of death, the sense that, oh, death is the end? Paul says, no, no, you know what? When you're loved with the love that is stronger than death, it means even death will not be the end. Now think about this. On the one hand, he says death is the last enemy to be defeated when Jesus appears, returns again. On the other hand, he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain? This is Paul able to say both realities. Death is an enemy, but because it's an enemy that's headed towards defeat, death for me now can be a gain. It's not final. It's not final. We can grieve it, we can mourn it, but in the end it's going to be the thing that brings me face to face with my Savior. Paul says, what you got now, death? What other card you got? It's all game over. And then he says, okay, so what is being loved with a love that is stronger than death? Due to the sense of our futility. Well, well, he says, in 1 Corinthians 15, talking all about resurrection, he says, everything that you do in the Lord will not be in vain. Because you've been loved with the love that is stronger than death, this shadow that hangs over Ecclesiastes doesn't hang over you. It doesn't hang over you. You're free to admit it, to say, yeah, That stinks. Death reminds me of the fragility of life. Death reminds me of the finality and the, and the futility. But you know what? I have been loved with a love that is stronger than death. And that changes everything. It changes everything. I think about this verse here in Hebrews 2 where he's, the writer of the Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus shared in the same thing, shared in our flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When you know that you've been loved with the love that is stronger in death, you are free from the slavery to death. You're free from it. I'm not saying death doesn't sting. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying death doesn't hurt. I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying you are free from the slavery to it. You no longer have this chain that says, oh, what does it matter? You're going to die anyway. You no longer have this thing that pulls you back and says, uh, oh, oh, you belong to me. Oh, oh. It's over. It's broken. And it frees you to love other people even in their death. And that's the, you think about what Christians have, why do you think Christians have been the ones who run to the sick and the dying while everyone else is running away? Because they don't fear death. They're not slaves to death anymore. There's stories from the early centuries. There's a sociologist at Baylor named Rodney Stark who tells these stories of of the early Christians when the plagues hit. And all these, the records of all the others fleeing the cities, it was Christians who stayed. Why? Why? Because they didn't fear death. They were not slaves to it. It's why hospitals all around the world were built by Christians. You can rant about religion all you want. But only the people who've been freed from slavery to death can love people even in their death. And that's why Christians do it. In our own city, St. Francis, the retreat center, used to be a place where people suffering from TB would come. And these sisters would care for them. Why do Christians do this? Because we're no longer slaves to death. I really believe, and take this and test this, think about this if you want. I really think that this conversation about death and dignity and all that, that dying with dignity has, has very little to do with choosing when you die. Dying with dignity has everything to do with being loved even in death. Dying with dignity has everything to do with being loved even in death. We saw this in our own city with Kara Tippetts. What gives death dignity is not, oh, I chose when I died. Nobody what gives death dignity is that you know you've been loved even in death and that ultimately you've been loved with a love that is stronger than death. The early Christians, they used to say this at Easter. They used to say, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs, bestowing life. I mean, think of it. Trampling down death by his own death. We say this phrase every week at communion, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. There's another version of this that comes again from early confessions of the church. And it goes like this. It says, Dying, you destroyed our death. And rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Oh, my gosh. I mean, think of it. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Today is the seventh Sunday of Easter. I know, for a lot of us, it's like, well, I thought Easter was just one Sunday. No, there's actually seven Easter Sundays. This is the seventh. Come on, get some ham on the way home from church, right? Do it again. (laughs) The feast is longer than the fast. Lent was six. Lent is the sixth Sunday thing where we remember our brokenness and our pain. On Easter, it goes seven because we're saying the feast will outlast the fast. Life will swallow up death. And in the end, Christ is risen from the dead. Dying, he destroyed our death. Rising, he restored our life. These banners have been on the sides of the stage throughout Easter. They were made by Jeremy Grant, who's an artist here. Jeremy, give us a wave. Right there. Beautiful. Yeah. And I don't know if you've been reflecting on these banners throughout the last few Sundays in Easter, and I didn't hear Jeremy give his explanation, so I'll take my stab at art interpretation. The dominant color on the bottom is white because, you know, Easter is white. It's about a new beginning. It's about new life. But you'll notice on both sides, there's a little stem that begins, and then as it goes upward, it blooms into something full of color because resurrection life starts small, but eventually it takes over. It was just one man who was raised from the dead—a man, the man, the God-man called Jesus. But in the end, his life will swallow up all death. And then you see, there's these little—it's fract- it, the picture is in fractals. It's little tiles, little pieces. And I think, to me, that's a picture of the body of Christ, the people of the resurrection. Maybe in your life there's just a little hint of resurrection life, but you know what? All of us together announces to the world. Christ is risen from the dead. Alleluia, alleluia. Together we make this beautiful announcement of resurrection to the world. The seventh Sunday of Easter is traditionally called Ascension Sunday, where you think about Jesus ascending. And do you know, sometimes in our weird churchy world, we think that ascension is like Jesus being ET, you know, going home. <laughs> With this glowing red finger, you know. But Paul says in Ephesians 4 that he was he who descended except the one who ascended in order that he might fill all things. The ascension of Jesus is Jesus taking the throne of heaven and earth and saying, and now I'm beginning to fill the world with my resurrection life. It started with the stem. It's going to be life taking over. Friends, that's what you're part of. That's what you're part of. You're not part of the sad story of death. Ultimately, you're part of the triumph of Jesus' life. Jesus said, eternal life is this, that they may know you and may know the one who sent me. What that means for us today, church, because we are the living right here, right? (laughs) What that means for us is that this resurrection life starts now. This resurrection life works in you now. I love the dying, he destroyed our death. I love it because we tend to just focus on the first part. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. You destroyed our death and I took our punishment. Great, 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 all true. But not just, he didn't just destroy death, he restored life. And Jesus said, that's what I came to do, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Have it to the full. Jesus is saying, it's it's not just about the negative aspect of grace, of, of destroying death and sin. It's about the positive aspect of saying, and I am restoring your life. Church, some of you are here this morning and you're saying, God, I need your life in me. I need something restored in me today. Something has died. Something is dying. Something is fading away. Something is withering. Maybe it's because of my own choices. Maybe, whatever the case might be. And I don't deserve your life. I can't earn your life. But thank you, Jesus, that dying, you destroyed my death. And rising, you restored my life. This morning, the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, is here to restore your life. To restore your